0: Hey everybody, welcome back to Gear 30 on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Well, today we are running an In Case You Missed It episode. It's a conversation that we had at our last Blister Summit on Ski Binding Design with Hoji, Lars Chickering Ayers, and Garai Dadali. And I think this is an extremely interesting and extremely important discussion on the past, present, and future of ski bindings. And in this conversation, Hoji, Lars, and Garai talk about quote-unquote acceptable use for certain bindings, and how that varies between individuals. They talk about the age of confusion surrounding different binding designs, being quote-unquote handcuffed by standards, and thinking about the binding-to-ski-boot-to-ski interface as a whole, what we should or hope to expect from bindings in the future, and much, much more. And honestly, I really do think of this as basically mandatory listening for every backcountry skier out there and honestly, pretty much every inbound skier out there as well. And if I had to single out a single portion of this conversation and why I regard this as kind of mandatory listening, I guess I would pick the part about thinking of the interface of your binding to your ski boot to your ski, that interface as a whole. And because I regard this conversation as being so important and as one that should be taken into account as we're thinking through our setups and purchasing gear, we did post the video of this conversation about a month ago over on our blister youtube channel so you are welcome to go check out that conversation on youtube but for those of you who missed it on youtube well do not miss this now because as it was once said knowing is half the battle this episode of gear 30 is presented by our collection of blister recommended shops And we will include a link to our recommended shop lists in the show notes of this episode. And we would always encourage you to bring up some of these topics and conversations with one of our recommended shops. And perhaps you can have them check the interface of the gear that we're talking about in this conversation. Or maybe this conversation gets you to think that it might be time to change certain gear in your setup. And since we're talking a whole lot about safety in this conversation, this would be a good time to remind you all about our Blister Plus membership, where you get all of the benefits that come with a Blister membership, including our personalized gear recommendations, access to our Blister happy hours, access to our flash reviews, and our incredibly valuable deep dive comparisons. And in addition to all of that, you will also get insurance coverage, injury insurance, up to $25,000 worth of coverage per incident. And that is whether you get hurt skiing or snowboarding or biking or trail running or fishing or rafting or kayaking or climbing. This injury insurance works for a number of outdoor sports activities, and you can see the complete list on our website. We will include a link to that in the show notes of this episode. It works for residents of any country in the world. The coverage goes for any place in the world, and all of this comes with a $0 deductible. We worked hard to get this program in place because we know that millions and millions of skiers and bikers and climbers and boaters could use something like this. So please check this out. Take a very close look and then sign up before you get hurt. Sign up before you go get after it. And frankly, I will sleep better at night. You will, too. And I'd love to reduce the number of emails I'm getting from people who keep saying how they just went and got hurt. They'd been meaning to sign up for Blister Plus. They hadn't quite got around to it. And now it's going to cost them thousands and thousands of dollars in medical bills. So please don't make that mistake. And go check it out become a blister plus member today or you can upgrade your standard blister membership and you will be covered as soon as you sign up and now let's talk about ski binding design and talk about acceptable use and the inherent risks involved in skiing and using this gear and yeah, buckle up for a really smart and really important conversation. Here we go. We are back on Valentine's Day, and you know, as a day to celebrate love and the loves of our lives, what better than to be sitting here for three panels in a row about our greatest love? Snow sports, sliding around on snow, with apologies to everyone's significant other. But anyway, happy Valentine's Day, everybody. Um, I'm very happy to be joined by these three folks uh, for reasons that if if those reasons aren't already clear to you, they are about to get clear to you, I think. Uh, but this is a, uh, a very cool panel and a number of people that I have told about this are like, how did, what, how are you doing this? And so expectations are very high for the three of you. And really uh, our job here is to be thinking about ski bindings. And I think we're going to run the gamut from AT bindings to Alpine. And then I really want to see, kind of try to get into the mind of these three folks to see what might be down the road when it comes to ski bindings, uh, a piece of equipment that maybe some of us don't think too much about. So to get started, um, I'm going to have, actually, I'm going to go Girai and then Lars and then Hoj, because Hoji likes to talk for a while. And so we're going to put him last on this one. But Girai, could you tell people a bit about you and your company, and a little bit of your relationship to this whole
1: world of bindings. I'm Garai Dadali. Had quite a full circle career from professional skiing and slope style, half pipe and rails primarily, and then transitioned into backcountry. And so a lot of what I've done is backcountry jump specialist. And these guys are a little bit more in the free ride realm, big mountain stuff. Took on engineering for J skis. I engineer with Forefront. Uh, I started a company, Daymaker Touring, in 2016, making alpine adapters. And uh, have had my hands dipped into all sorts of other companies and have worked in the biomedical world for engineering as well. So, coming at this from a guy with a ton of injuries, tons of time on snow, and utilized a lot of different gear in my life.
2: Lars um i've was part of the free skiing tour for a long time that was the last reason i was here was long 10 years ago um and from that i moved on to uh starting to cast touring which is a i guess the first hybrid touring binding out there and i've been just trying to figure out how to make a binding that does everything really well for for the last 10 years so
0: yeah so lars my question is what led you to start cast?
2: It was just, we were skiing on tour to in general, 10 years ago, it was pretty much Dina fit or trekkers. I guess Fritchie's were a thing, but there was nothing that was reliable to tour on and ski down. That was also efficient, um, to let us ski the way we wanted to. Um, So that was the main incentive and I went from full gamut of all the different options to do it and then realized I would just not try to make anything not what it was and take what existed which was pin bindings and then alpine bindings and just make a way to use both of them and that was the start and we made a little quick change system and it's just evolved into better versions of that over the last 10 years and still pretty much the same basic idea. And there's been now quite a few other people have tried to solve that problem in different ways. And it's, it's been cool to see that progression. And it's also really legitimized us as not just out there on the fringe taking stuff off our skis. So yeah.
0: Hoji, where do you fit into all this? (laughs) (laughs)
3: <laughs> there <you go. laughs> um, yeah I didn't really do much with bindings I guess <laughs> um, I guess my piece of the puzzle was a uh, at from the early times of 10 plus years ago was kind of took a chance with low-tech bindings DNA fit bindings to when the boots started coming that the first boots with inserts that were compatible that finally were after 20 30 years of the only boots that were compatible with these minimalist bindings that were made specifically for ski touring were skiing wasn't the the primary use or like downhill performance wasn't the focus it was walking and uh <clears throat> Yeah, two thousand nine, ten. They they made like a four buckle overlap boot with inserts, and uh, I I contacted them, got got some boots and bindings, and uh, yeah, put put them to use and, and just tried to like see what you know if they if they could work because at that time like the, the tech bindings, the low tech bindings, and primarily it was a it was the the main company uh in the market they had existed and they were very accepted in the the ski touring world racing a racing and like really like backcountry skiing people concerned about getting up getting down or going on traverses and weight was the the primary focus but there weren't many people there were there were ski mountaineers doing crazy descents all over the world for 20 30 years already like trusting that system but kind of how skiing evolved into this free ride skiing, there, there wasn't many takers on, on seeing if that binding could, uh, you know, perform in a way or or if it was acceptable for, for free riding. Um, so I was kind of this guinea pig test pilot. There was others. Of course it wasn't just me, but that's where I got started. Gotcha. Yeah. So
0: let's talk about this. What's acceptable, right? it seems like this is the kind of already now age-old question, hotly debated, right? Um, Often you are cited, Hoji, of like, tech bindings are fine, go ski hard stuff in them. I mean, Hoji does, right? Like, you've probably been part of a conversation that has gone like that. And so how do you all think about this question of What is acceptable or wise to do across the gamut of bindings?
1: For me, I would put the level of acceptability for what I want to do in the backcountry to be if I'm not comfortable riding Crested Butte in these conditions right now and flowing at my top level in that binding, I'm pretty much not going to take that in the backcountry. So that's why I have an adapter system so that I can use that binding that I trust inbounds and out of bounds. And that's where I put my level of acceptability is I can trust its release setting. I can trust that it's going to hold me in, but more importantly, I can trust that it's going to release when I need it to. So I don't suffer another injury compounding in my career. Hmm. And for people who maybe
0: aren't so familiar with daymakers, man, it's an easy thing once you've seen it. But I was just thinking like, how would I actually describe that? And I would do that badly. So
1: have you dialed that in? It's an insert that attaches to your boot and plugs into your normal downhill ski binding, just like your boot would. You can tour uphill with it. It gives you heel ability. When you reach the top of a mountain, you take it off and you put it in your backpack. It doesn't change the way that you ski. You're using your normal ski binding. That's it in a nutshell, but it's compatible across the board of every single ski binding on the market. So you don't have to say, Oh, I need to use a a marker Griffin with this. I need to use a pivot with that. Everyone's got gear in their closet. They want to use each ski they want for a different day. Conditions out there are always changing. And so that's why we have quivers. So adaptability has been really important to me and why I push that system.
0: What's the price on
1: it? About $320.
0: Okay. Um, Hoji this whole question of like, what's acceptable. And some people being like, you're crazy for doing that in this binding. You, you know, one, do you get that question a lot? And how do you
3: talk about that? (laughs) Yeah. I've wasted a few hours of my life with that, but I mean, it's a personal choice and my needs and my accepted like risk or what I'm like, I, I put in the time I started skiing those bindings and in my, through my own process developed trust. And like I was blown away and it speaks to like how well they are designed for the time they came from that they could fulfill in a way what skiing has become like the requirements. So it's a personal choice and like, at the end of the day for, for many years now, like I've been very focused on more backcountry skiing and like, you have to get to the top. You you want efficiency. You spend 95 plus percent of your day walking and going uphill. And I mean, that, that was the, 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 the TSN turning point for me was like, I, I've been skiing my whole life and the whole time we're relying on chairlifts and, in Canada or here too, like snowmobiles and all mechanical things. And like, but the mountains are just there. And like skiing could be more than just going down. Like that's what skiing was from the beginning from (laughs) that's why skis exist was for traveling through snow in the mountains on your feet. And, uh, (laughs) I, I, I felt like I just want to go over there, but I can't, you know, and This, this was a personal choice and like getting away from everything and, and, and just, I'm a powder junkie and like the, the, these light bindings and and this kind of setup for those conditions are actually, that's what I discovered. It's like, it's actually very good. Okay. Yeah. Not like pushing it and doing jumps and all this stuff. That's not, not what it was made for, but actually just like powder skiing, it's fine in a way. And it's great for going up. And the more I got used to it, the more I like accepted the, the compromise or whatever you might say and came to actually really appreciate like removing all this weight. Like I'm a light, small person and all the weight I could shred shed off of me. Suddenly I can like jump way in the air. And like, I feel, I feel it's like a different style. You want to be nimble and quick and, and fast and like the less weight you have to move around on your body, on your feet it becomes easier. You can be more dynamic, but the, the, the compromise or whatever the, the opposite end is like when you have that mass on your feet and on your skis and on your bindings and you just become a bulldozer and you can plow through everything. And like, so it's a personal like style or choice. So that's kind of, that's kind of the direction I chose or, I fell into and yeah, for me, it was okay, but I'm tiny and I'm weak <laughs> <laughs> and my boots are small. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Between your weakness and your tininess and your yes. tiny boots. I don't even know how you make it down the mountains sometimes. <laughs> um, Lars, the acceptable question. Um,
2: I think that sort of ties into everything we do in the mountains. It's, um, It's all about risk management. We got into that a lot last night with athletes and it's, there's all different types of things out there, you know, whether you're carrying your Abbey gear, where you're wearing a helmet and I feel like bindings are one of the few pieces of equipment that's specifically designed with safety in mind. Alpine bindings were designed to solve a specific problem of lower leg injuries and they've done a very good job of that throughout the years. Um, And I think like, it is a personal preference. There's uses for everything. And I think where we've gone is sort of what both of these guys addressed. We wanted what Gry had as, you know, the most bomber binding you could have every time you ski. And for me in a comfort level, I'm out there to ski and just enjoy the mountains. And I don't want to have to modify my style based on the day or where I'm at, you know, and think about what skis I'm on. I ski the same skis every day of the year, whether I'm sled skiing, touring at the resort. And it's just a comfort thing for me, you know, and then I think as our company, we just tried to get both of those things. And we have the efficiency of a pin binding with, you know, a full on Alpine binding. We sacrifice a little on weight and change out, but that's sort of what it is. And if people are willing to make that, then it works well. Um, And I think as Hoji was talking about, it's like, if you're aware of what you're skiing if you're skiing powder and you're hoji and you don't fall then pin bindings are perfectly acceptable <laughs> if you're the rest of us and you do then you might want a bias designed to you know prevent injury um and yeah i mean there's days i go out and ski without a helmet there's days i go out you know and ski without partners in backcountry but it's like it's all just about that and for me having the consistency of my bindings and skis gives me the confidence to know that I can handle the situations. If I see something I want to jump off, I can without thinking about it. You know, if stuff starts to move, I can stop turning and go to the bottom. It's just like, I don't know. It It is what it is. It's like one of the many things that you bring with you and it, it often gets overlooked. You know, whether it's someone locking out their pin bindings and not realizing that ski's not going to come off if they slide or their heel might release and it's still going to cause damage. You know, it's a lot of stuff that's, yeah, it's easy to just not think about,
0: Mm -hmm. I guess. You all did a really good job, I think, of articulating these kind of three different points on this binding spectrum. And as you all were talking, what I'm thinking is, man, I don't feel like many, many, many skiers are clear on the kind of, pros and cons and compromises. And that is, um, I don't actually even, I need to do better at thinking about how that got to be the case. But I don't think as an industry, we're very good on this right now, just in terms of, because, you know, look, free country, let people make their own choices. I'm fine with that. But I think there's a lot of people that just aren't very clear on some of the the differences in these designs, technologies, et cetera, et cetera. D- do do you agree with that? First of all, yes, yeah, yeah. We're in
3: a time of confusion here. Yeah. Like, wow, just, this is there's very a lot true. of random stuff that just doesn't add. You know, like all the standards, all the different bindings, all the a bunch of like things trying to retrofit, and like, it, no one actually understands. Like, unless you read the standards and you know, and even I don't know, but like, it's, it's a very confusing time. I mean, people have been jamming touring boots and Alpine boots and Alpine bindings for 10 years now. And like, no one seemed to care. And then, oh, well now this, whatever the insert is outside the norms of the Alpine binding and everyone made a big deal of it and all these things, but actually like in the reality the com- cross compatibility compromises were all the same. And like, no one, no one talks about it or thinks about that because it's just convenient to do what you can do at that time. Hmm. Um, so it needs to get, it needs to get streamlined a little bit or, or divided into like two specific. Now we're trying to fix everything with things that are, we're dealing with two standards. One's the same age as me for like, 1984 and the other one's like 60 years old i think Mm -hmm. and skiing has changed a lot since that so that's where the future and like we where we we could take this conversation is like the the sport of skiing and the requirements of the users and like the amount of people and just the diversity of what everyone's expecting from park skiers to alpine racers to pow skiing to ski randonnée, like It's it's a huge amount of different requirements, and some of the like where the main product sits is trying to solve all that, and and like retrofit things. So it's it gets very confusing very quickly. Hmm. (laughs) Garai or
0: Lars, do you have? Are you sitting here frustrated about? What did you call it? The era of confusion. That was very yeah, the age of confusion. The age of confusion. Damn, that's good. Um, are you guys sitting there thinking? Yes, we agree. There's a lot of confusion, and this is clearly how you reduce confusion. Thoughts on this?
2: <laughs> that's gonna be a tough one. Um, I don't know. I think that sort of goes back to starting at the beginning and. What alpine bindings are and what touring bindings are very different things, and they were created for very different reasons. Um, as I said before, alpine bindings were created because skiing was suffering somewhat of an epidemic of lower leg injuries. The first bindings out there were just went from straps, you know, strapping your boot to a wooden ski, in which case you couldn't turn, to mechanical. And once they went mechanical, all of a sudden you could turn. It was awesome. Skiing blossomed, but then Essentially, there was, you know, a ton of lower leg injuries, twisting and boot-top fractures. And we created a standard and products that eliminated that injury, not entirely, but to a huge extent. But they couldn't tour. And then, I guess it was in the late 80s, early 90s, the pin bindings were invented sort of as the premier touring. But they were invented without any any consideration of that. It was to solve a problem of moving through the mountains and still being on a ski. Um, And I think for a long time, as long as Dina patent lasted for 20 years, they sort of had the full monopoly on that and people just accepted them as different things. And I think the confusion really started whenever that was, 2012, when that patent expired. And all of a sudden, there was a huge incentive for the industry to just legitimize that, you know, and make that segment Mm -hmm. bloom and the way to make that segment bloom was to ignore the fact that those bindings didn't meet the safety standards of alpine bindings and there was a lot of it wasn't really effort it was just sort of turning the other cheek you know tech shop techs who would never let a binding leave their shop if it was an alpine binding without passing certs and getting their identification were mounting pin bindings sending people out on them and thinking nothing of it um and that's sort of just the baseline and for us, we started in 2012, we're a tiny company, we didn't have the resources to get to certified or pass ISO standards. We did the testing to make sure our products met that safety standard. But it was sort of a blessing because it was, there was so much confusion that we could just put the product out there. And there were a couple people who sort of called us out on it, but we knew that it was safe and worked like an alpine binding. But had it been 10 years earlier, there wouldn't have been a shop in the country that would have mounted one for us. So, and that sort of continued, I think with the advent of, you know, as the kingpin followed our first lead and then the shift and now the Duke, that whole segment of trying to do both has become more mainstream and people have realized that it's important to have a releasable binding and the industry's trying to sort of reestablish that as something that's important and it's hard to do, especially with the new boot standards. And, you know, I've got one employee who handles our customer service and he would very much attest to the confusion Mm -hmm. (laughs) of all the boot, especially the boot standards. It's like there's now three or four and just we've created AFDs for all of them. It's just trying to figure out, you know, to the average person, what works with what is a rather daunting task. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think we've sort of reached a point where oh, i don't see any super new on the boot side coming out so i think bindings will catch up and people will figure out what's going on but um yeah it's not real clear how to uh get over that you know 15 years of sort of pretending that these two things were equivalent hmm.
3: but the uh- yeah, you you have to meet Fritz because like he actually I know we, we he I've had a very good yeah, conversation like, about this but yeah if you take the the low tech bindings and you ski them unlocked on the skis of the time like he had to pass all kinds yeah. it wasn't DIN but he like those bindings are they like do. he he spent twenty years to make them they do. they do really like yeah. it's we, that's the problem is we're skiing on a hundred. 120 and sending it and like huge boots that didn't ever fit in those bindings and locking them and all these things like and and all the work that he did has been completely ignored Hmm. by other companies like he actually put in the effort like he didn't want people breaking their legs and bindings not coming off and like they were never intended to be skied locked there's all there's all the history that's been kind of glazed over like those bindings were developed with to in their own standard to be safe like we're just pushing them we're taking like a carbon road bike and putting it going in the whistler bike park yeah that's you know know, like like it's not (laughs) it's not really the work was put in and it was done in a way through a lot of time and effort and trial and error so it's just the use of those bindings we're we've we've kind of transformed it to what they were never like at the time, what they were meant to do on the skis and what skiing was, they were quite all right. Yeah. us a beer. All uh, right, that's uh, fine. First, yeah. I, round of beers. I'll pay. I got my card. Yeah, well, I'd, Please, I'd, I'd agree with
1: Hoji here with intended usage, I think is, is the biggest point to push. And in the end, everyone's in the industry to sell product. And so they'll do what it takes to try to sell their product. But, For me personally, I answer so much customer service and if someone says that their intended usage of getting out touring is to go do 10 miles, do 4,000 vert, I'm not going to push them to my own system. I'm going to push them to something else where the intended usage is that. And you know, for me, I'm into more, I'd say like starter systems and it just so happens that that starter system is really good for people trying to ski at a high level of jumps and cliffs too, because you're going to, I'm going to put the trust in the binding manufacturers who have put safety at the top of the line for 60 years, innovating on these bindings. So I try to take that question out of my hand and put it in the ballpark of those companies. So a big thing that I've faced is I make the adapter compatible with all different types of boots. And we have these changing boots all the time that Lars hit on. I saw walk-to-ride begin to hit the industry. I mean, what was that? What was the point? No one agreed upon that. Yeah. Yeah. And then grip walk, I'm pretty sure there's some different heights. And I've 3D scanned every boot, every binding into my system to make it compatible with it all. And one millimeter makes the biggest difference. So to say that this boot has grip walk and it has grip walk on the side and it's a millimeter different in height is completely unacceptable. So...
3: The only consistency in ski boot manufacturing or design is inconsistency. I promise you. I've been dealing with this. I I
1: talked to Hoji here about a stat a little bit ago. It was about the width of pin inserts Uh and the variance in this. Just saying, we need to meet standards across the board. And in the end, if something can reduce your holding power by 30 or 50%, how can you trust those numbers if just one or two millimeters makes all that difference? A
3: tenth of a millimeter. <laughs> like the, Everyone blames the binding. That's like the when all this started happening and like, I won't get into those details, but like, it's always the bindings fault. Oh, this yeah. shitty tech binding, whatever it is. And it's like, you know, it's tenths of millimeters and you're not even close and, the pin, you're shaking the the insert in the it's side to side. You know it's a hot dog down the hallway situation.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: that makes no sense. <laughs> <laughs> unless unless hot...
2: Jonathan hasn't <laughs> had that shirt. That makes. Oh, your. your cat. This is <laughs> some <Bye>. Canadian speak. <laughs>
0: hot dog down the hallway. All right, all right. All right.
3: But it's always the binding that yeah. takes the blame and the same, like how many people are cramming kind of these walk to ride and all these different souls and Alpine bindings for 10 plus years. And like, no one seems to care. And it's like, you put those on any machine, like go to the ski shop and test it. And it's completely compromised. There's no interface that's too thick. It's too high. It's rubber sitting depressed, preloaded down. Like a, none of it is working actually.
0: Okay. So, so for people who own a ski boot with tech fittings, is the advice here, take it into your shop and they can test that? Yeah. And so, and then, and then the question is, are you all talking about, um, improper tolerance levels on a new boot or boots that get you know, worn over time, where are you seeing the bigger issue, new boots or, you know, somebody who's got 60 days in a pin boot? I think that goes back
2: to the difference between pin bindings and alpine bindings. There is a standard for alpine Mm -hmm. bindings. That standard is plus or minus a millimeter, which two millimeters is a pretty significant amount. There's bindings that have adjustable toe heights. There's bindings that have preload on them, but two millimeters in an alpine boot that allows for wear over the life of the boot manufacturing discrepancies most alpine bindings can account for that the different boot soles is a whole another nightmare we have three different afds for a binding to and we have to deal with talking through each customer which afd fits their boot but on the flip side there is no standard for pin bindings the closest thing there is is the DinaFit certified pins, which mm. come from DinaFit and meet their standards. And as Hoji was saying, DinaFit put the work in to design a binding that released properly with their boots, you know, at the way it was designed. And that I fully respect and it is something true. The frustration I think a lot of people experienced is I don't know if it's DinaFit or the industry. That was just sort of held through proprietary technology, and it still is. The only thing that meets a standard is the Ninafit inserts. Um, but it's such a small discrepancy. Whatever is a tenth of a millimeter in a pin binding on that tiny little metal-on-metal interface makes a huge difference. And those interfaces where a handful of releases with a pin binding will wear those to the point of being extremely different from factory versus you know, an alpine binding, that won't happen. Um, and I think the issue within the tech binding world, Hoji probably could speak to this more than me, is that tolerance is so small, it's not feasible, mm-hmm. or it would be pretty much impossible for binding or boot manufacturers to meet that tolerance in an economical way. If there was a standard like the boot standard, it would, you know... I don't know how many dollars, but it'd be hundreds of dollars a boot to hold that tolerance. Um, And it would be awesome if that happened because I think it would create a better pin binding and a better system, but it's just not super realistic. Um, If you really want to get in the weeds on that one, um, a friend of mine from years ago in Utah, Jeff Campbell, did a whole PhD thesis on this, on the discrepancy between, and he's got some really good videos online you can get into that. But um
1: Hmm.
2: yeah, it's a that's a tough one to solve.
1: So could there be more adjustability in the actual pin binding itself to accommodate the differences in boot manufacturers?
2: Um I
1: you guys have more experience I mean that's how they started.
3: It it used to have but it, yeah, you know, I, I don't know en- enough, but it's just too I mean, much. It's that, too much. Like, you can't do that. That You're, might
2: be, yeah, like going down the route of the future or the yeah. past. My biggest frustration uh, with pin bindings is that, that interface works really well. It's a tight little pin, it gives you a pivot, it gives you holding. Had that interface been, you know, twice the size in a ball, you'd have way more surface area. You could actually have some movement in your toe. And actually, like a release that might be a better interface than an Alpine binding. Like if it was a full-on ball and socket versus a tiny little pin, that mm-hmm. could be. But that's would take a you know a complete paradigm shift of every single tech system. But that's binding what, binding that's boot.
3: what it's going to take. I can tell like, you the story of, like, exa- yeah. of walking around ISPO, the last big one before the pandemic, and with Fritz. And he's just shaking his head. He's like, "Please, no more low tech findings. Why are we suffering yeah. this shit from the '80s? That it, like my ignorance from being his yeah, engineering student. Like, like, yeah, but no thing. one, no one can, no one can do anything. Like, yeah. what's going on here? Why can't anyone actually do
2: anything? Yeah, That's he picked a, a, <laughs> a five millimeter." Yeah, because he pin. wanted the lightest and
3: he wants possible the lightest thing. thing. And
2: if he had picked a you know a half-inch ball, which would have still he pirated, have inches Or whatever you want.
3: <laughs> <laughs> All right. 12 millimeters. 12, yeah,
2: yeah. 12.3 millimeters. Um, ball, it would have given us a ton of freedom. Like the mm-hmm. Fritchie Tecton, I have a ton of respect for what they're trying to do. That interface is so small that it's like sort of doomed to failure, like mm-hmm. having arms that articulated, but had that been a bigger interface, mm-hmm. you could have a ton of movement in a textile toe mm-hmm. and have it releasable. And that just, it, we've gone, you know, maybe 15 years ago had Dina Fit been like, oh, we're changing things up. We're the only game in town. We're going to change the size of our pins. It could have happened right now. It seems like it would take some company Essentially launching an entire line of boots and bindings yeah, yeah, yeah. to overcome that and that becoming more popular yeah. than everything else on the market, which we're, we're seem handcuffed, super by, we're we're handcuffed
3: we're, by standards and like yeah. no real innovation can ha- it can happen. It's a bunch of band aids yeah. and none, none of it is good for anything. Like it's just that we're suffering from mistakes of the past and things that were designed for what we're not actually doing anymore and but someone has to I mean that's what the low-tech story is like fighting to create something better for 25 years before anyone other than the fringe users could accept it so it's really a tough situation I agree 100% but it, it, it could be in a in a fantasy world like it all makes sense like it it doesn't have to be this way, actually. Yeah. yeah, I
2: would love to. Like, I could make a binding that would do that, but I yeah. can't make yeah. a line of boots or convince yeah. everyone else to buy that binding. No. So, no. yeah, that's sort of where we're at, and it's and that's why to come from full circle to where I started was I just figured I'd take these two things that existed and figure out a way to make them work together, not try to make them but something, independently something that didn't exist, mm-hmm. you know? Because and that's you know. Sort of our whole story, and and I'm, I think there's a lot of room for improvement. Actually, on the Alpine side of bindings, and that's where my head's at. But you um, don't
3: say. Yeah,
2: <laughs> and it, and you, there aren't any other companies. I know. I guess, like listening to the ski, um, talk from yesterday, it was really cool to see that evolution in skiing, and that's my sort of biggest most exciting thing about what I've done is surviving creating a company that's now viable is that there are four binding manufacturers you know at the macro level we're the only outside the pin binding world which has a ton of micro we're the only micro company even thinking about the alpine world Um, and most of those other companies are pretty set in what they're doing they're not trying Um, and that's a enormous enormous engineering and design hurdle to create a better alpine binding, but that's more the direction we're trying to go.
0: Okay, that was a lot. Um <laughs> but two very cool things. One, I love the phrase handcuffed by standards. Because if somebody's out there being like, yeah, why aren't these companies doing better handcuffed by standards? Another part is, well, maybe skiers aren't asking for this stuff because, to quote a wise man, we're in the age of confusion. So one, the education isn't there, which means manufacturers aren't getting that pressure. But even if there was that uh, growing pressure, then we got to figure out how to get out of the shackles of standards. So I think you guys have done a really good job of kind of explaining, it's not just Laying blame, it's like there are actual complexities to all of this. Um, okay, um, whose idea was it to not make this one three hours long? Um, but let's pivot to Alpine bindings, and maybe we—I I think you've you've presented already some really interesting thoughts on the AT side of things. Um, Let's get weird on the alpine binding side. Because actually, Lars and Garay, you've both actually said, hey, this is great. Uh, these bindings, you know, and standards have existed for many, many decades. And yet, if we were going to be thinking about what innovations could happen on the alpine binding side in the next five years, 10 years, 20 years, help us out. Let's get weird.
2: I think a huge one happened this year, actually. Um, Head came out with a protector binding. It has a lateral heel release. Knee binding has been around for a long time. Those guys have had uh, some interesting stories in terms of business, and they didn't ever quite bring a product to market that had the retention that it takes. Um, But opening our minds to injuries that bindings can prevent that are not tibial fractures such as knee injuries in a lateral heel release, which all tech bindings have actually does a better job of preventing knee injuries than a lateral toe release. And there's a, in that, I think if that could become part of the standard, like it it would be, it's going to be a tough one because there's a lot of binding design out there and it's a really tough one to overcome that retention portion. Um, Of bindings which we could get a little more into but that's a big one wider skis are causing tibial plateau fractures because they're putting so much more torque like laterally on your knee there's not a great mechanical solution at your foot for that but there's just a lot of room for improvement as skis have changed so much you know we're not skiing 200 centimeter straight skis anymore Mm -hmm. which is doing tiny turns tiny turns you know there's a lot of different forces. Um, I don't know how Alpine buying necessarily addressed that, but there's just room for thought. One of the most frustrating things for me <laughs> getting into this is how litigious, I guess, the binding industry has become. At one point, it was a product to prevent injury, and then it seems like we created the standards, and then Alpine buying manufacturers shifted from creating products <laughs> to defending products in court. Mm. You know, if you ironically use the word safety around an alpine binding engineer, they'll be like, "Don't say that because if you tell someone your binding is safe, they will sue you when they get hurt." Mm. And it's like as simple as that. Like just shifting that to be like, "Let's go back to problem solving and create something that is safer than what we have." like there's no way you will ever prevent all injuries and i think a big it's a sort of a it's an intangible thing it's something people feel when they ski bindings but it's really hard to express but the retention in bindings is far more important than release in a lot of respects retention prevents all upper body injuries head injuries neck injuries like if your skis stay on and you don't fall You didn't break your neck by your skis coming off if your skis release you didn't break your leg so that aspect is is really hard to quantify it's much easier just test the torque when a binding comes off a leg than it is to figure out how much force that binding absorbed and didn't come off Um, and that's just sort of i think what (laughs) the current standard achieves and a lot of people no, intuitively by skiing different bindings. You know, like the shift passes all the same standards as the pivot 18. If you go ski those two bindings side by side, set at the same release value, you're going to have very different results in your skiing. Um, and that's, like I said, known to intuitively, but really hard to quantify. Um, and that's, I think, something people don't really realize that their bindings are doing when yeah. they're skiing.
0: Your eye. your turn. You spend much time thinking about this? I might spend a little
2: of time. I'm listening
1: to Lars right now, thinking about the areas that uh, I agree upon. And he mentioned something that struck me very specifically, that so many of these injuries are a result of binding retention. And I can speak that a lot of my injuries have been caused by one ski coming off when it should not, and the other failing to release after that. That's led to multiple torn MCLs, a full-blown Achilles. Yeah, I did my Achilles exactly that way last March. So if those skis would have stayed on, or, I don't know, if I had locked out a pin, would I have been completely fine in this circumstance?
3: I mean, it's the impossible problem of, like, if you're skiing at a high level or whatever aggressively, the retention value that you need, I mean, after – like DIN ten is like your your bones break. Like there should have never been above DIN ten. That was from what I have been told. Yes, that, that
2: is the that is the highest. That is the, the chart highest. sort of ends there. That's then like to,
0: then say more on this. I don't think many people have heard this. There that's, shouldn't be higher than
1: a DIN. Like DIN 10,
3: ten was like your legs bones are breaking. Because I only for ski bit, eighteen, for so for I, exactly. that's that's a
1: specific fall though. No, well, but that's I mean, that's the problem. I've taken like DIN fifteen. Landed on a cliff backseat and exploded upwards and come out of my bindings.
3: Yeah, but that's that's the point is like
1: nothing happened.
3: It's 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 not like the retention is what you need to achieve Whoa. high performance skiing and these impacts and all this stuff, it's so much higher than injury. Like you could fall off I've had I know people who'd get off the chairlift and someone takes them out and they blow their ACL because of a twisting slow yeah. fall and like you need a din of 0.5 to yeah. come out of your ski so it's like it's not a consistent what an injury what kind of retention failure would cause an injury doesn't actually equate to like what the retention of skiing in a at any kind of level with impacts and different like it's all it, it doesn't make sense like it doesn't actually make sense that's why there's no safety binding I mean, because I'd they've had a safety binding the din would be 0.5 and you like mm-hmm. lean forward to buckle your boots and you come out of your binding <laughs> yeah. but then if you get off the chairlift and someone takes you out you come out of your binding you don't blow your acl so it's like a it's not a it's not a like a thing where you can just say well i have din 15 and i'm never going to come out but suddenly i come out perfectly every time like it's not they can't quantify there's too many things going on too many directions too much force too much like it's it, you can't do it or no one has been able to do it like Tough one, yeah. the alpine bindings are great but like they can't solve acl problems of people falling over in an awkward situation at slow motion everyone blows their knee it's a common thing it's like well i just fell over sat down and like my knees and and that's it. Like, oh, are you tomahawked like crazy and you're fine. Hmm. And your skis came off or they didn't or whatever. So it's so random. Hmm. Your your joints, your bones, everything is not made to have a two-meter lever on it going in every direction. Like, it's a very tough problem. Hmm. <laughs> it's a super yeah. tough problem.
2: <laughs> that's a, Yeah, that's a rabbit hole, I think. Yes. Um, yeah, the standard was written for essentially like the the crash test dummy 90th percentile male under certain circumstances. And that was the, the torque and just straight lateral torque. 10 was essentially the highest that, a you know, 200 pound six foot four man's leg would break at in straight torque. But when you're not moving slow, when you're moving fast, you have more, more momentum. You're buying really like, I know, I've now turned my dents down, but when I competed, I would, you know, I'm 150 pounds. I would ski with my dents at 16, and I would be conscious of it. It was like skiing a pin binding. If I was in a comp run, I knew my skis weren't going to come off unless I was moving quickly. They would still release super reliably if I was falling at speed, and I would, you know, I wouldn't always be in perfect control on my tomahawks, but I would be like, all right. (laughs) I'm about to hit hard. This is where my skis should come off and like flex through my bindings. My skis would release, you know, but if I was skiing a groomer, I would be very conscious not to let my tip hook. And that's some. but it's, that was just a personal experience of knowing mm-hmm. the forces that I apply to the binding and it applies back on me. Um, and that's, that standard was figured out. Yeah. Just as best they could essentially against, a test dummy like in a lab with what the strength of the bone is versus what it was very much just scientific of where your leg should break at this torque and I think Toji's point it's actually somewhat accurate like if you're moving slow and you just apply that torque slowly it's probably going to break your leg if it's above a 10 and you're my size but if you apply it with force it won't and that's Bindings trying to do a lot, uh-huh. I guess, of things. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just, it's a hard dynamic. And I think that the industry has recognized that. There are bindings that go above 10. And within testing bindings, you're supposed to test bindings based on experience. Like if you are experiencing pre-releases, you should adjust your bindings accordingly and turn them up. It's There's a shop setting, but then there's a lot of range that people don't realize that the industry has accepted that you can put into that adjustment and still be indemnified and cover everything. And that's, you know, just go to a shop. You can request two over-recommended, no questions asked, because you know your history. Um, But then when manufacturers test bindings, there's a whole on, like, actual physical testing, and those results you know and it's essentially you ski them as low as you can and you continue turning them up until you stop experiencing pre release because that is the most important thing in preventing all the other injuries
1: yeah. that makes sense but that's the point where you do have that injury unfortunately yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> i think we've all been there of experiencing the yeah. lower din and trying to be safe and then you're like well i pre-released i pre-released get up to that point and then you take a fall that's extraordinarily different than the rest. That does not make sense in your mind for years after it. Mm -hmm. And that's the one that you got severely injured on. And that's the thing, you build up so much trust in this system, going from eight din, nine din, 10 din, and what happens in life isn't linear, it's not at all. Yeah. So that fall is not gonna happen in that same way. Mm. And uh, a lot of times, like pushing as athletes, yeah, we're riding at a super high den and we're pushing the limits, but a lot of times it's like the really small circumstance that ends up being the one that hurts you the most.
2: I mean, I think that for me, that just to bring this all the way back is we're falling down mountains with wood on our feet. (laughs) Yeah, Like it's not a (laughs) safe endeavor. Yeah, like expecting products to save us from that isn't realistic. Like if you make a mistake when you're doing that, you're probably gonna get hurt one way or another.
1: They've done a pretty good job. <laughs> to be Everything honest, exactly considered, like, <laughs> yes. that's, that's it. Like, yeah. There's so many other factors of, like, was the binding adjusted properly for your foot? And I can mm-hmm. tell from, like, the customer service stuff I'm doing that people have brand-new boots. You mentioned this earlier, the settings, brand-new boots, and they'll have, like, a millimeter of play up and down in their binding for their AFD adjust. They had new bindings. They had this, that. Maybe they swapped out a boot, but did they take it to that shop and get it approved? So there's so much human element and then every time your boot wears did you account for that and so maybe that fall and the injury is a result of that there's a lot of factors all of our bodies are so different and i don't know did you go read the latest like exercise program before going out and skiing and do the last three months training for that fall Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. all that plays into it
3: good (laughs) luck If we wanted to get into the Alpine, like, where could we go? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're dealing with, like, this essentially plate on the bottom of your foot for skis that were 60-something millimeters and this kind of toe and heel lug. And, like, everyone here is walking around like robots.
0: Mm -hmm.
3: And it's... But that's where it could actually change, and they tried in the 70s and 80s. There's all kinds of, and it just never made it. But like by today's standards and what's going on, and like what people want, and the width of the skis, and like walking around, and not even for touring, but like you could make, you could delete all that that whole thing except for like alpine racing, and make something that's actually much more usable for everyone out there. I believe. And also considering, like, a big thing with Alpine bindings is snow, icing, grip walk, chewed up. Like, it's just you're dealing with, you're clamping something in that if there's anything in the way, you're compromised. Mm -hmm. And it happens all the time. And, like, So you could think outside of that and make something completely different than nothing that we could think of. You could look back to that stuff from the eighties and seventies and like with today's mindset and technology or whatever, there could be, you could achieve the same results that we have with this block on your foot only designed for race skis, basically in like a consumer way, I think, Mm -hmm. but It's the same problem with the. You could make bigger pins. You could do all this stuff, but like, how do you? How do you? You can't. We're handcuffed to this. Like, from 1950, whatever I think it is, like when skis were this, like this, and no one cared. You just appraised and fell over, and no one cared because you're in Europe and it doesn't matter.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I think to to see that innovation, we would need to see boot manufacturers working directly with the binding and having like the full integration system where you're not going to meet those standards they're going to be thrown out yeah yeah completely
3: deleted but like how many how many brett there's major powerhouse players that make boots bindings
1: and skis but totally not cross compatible everything that we make now is cross compatible it's going to be but it has to be
3: so much better to to I mean, look, low-tech, it was so much better than all the other touring stuff for yeah. uphill performance, yes. and even that took 20-something years of fighting and all this stuff just to get it, and now it's everywhere. But So people, the industry is, like, it's manufacturing, electric vehicles or whatever. Like, it, it, it takes so much time. You could yeah. have something so much more advanced, but, like, it takes so much time to, like, make that... Work so that's what we're, that's what we're dealing with in my opinion, and we're just skiing. It's fun. Like we've got pieces of wood strapped to our feet, and we're wiggling our ass, and hopefully we're not breaking our knees. You know, that's what yeah. it is. Yeah.
2: Um,
0: <laughs> let's open this up to just a couple of questions. Um, so the question is, from each of your particular perspectives and roles you're playing in these different companies this world of ski boot, ski boots, and then the accompanying bindings playing nicer together and creating sort of the ideal system, given where your different kind of companies lay on the spectrum, what would that look like? Right, you got to go I'm first because this one's like, hard.
1: For me, if I'm thinking about my greatest problem out there for the way that I want to ski, is if I'm going to go do a huge approach to something and ski that line the way I want to do it, it's not going to be on my lightweight gear that I have. So if I need to get further out there and trust my bindings, I need a lighter weight downhill binding. I need to break the thousand gram barrier for a trustable binding for downhill. We can make an adapter system, whatever, super light. We get a 200 gram one great but then my boot that i trust too needs to get lighter and lighter pairing everything up is super important in my mind so when i have someone who's going on like a burly downhill ski with metal reinforced and then they go and ski a super lightweight touring boot in that and they're like oh this boot's not enough or like my system's not light enough i'm like well like think about losing weight on the ski pair every single thing up like cut your toenails, don't eat that burrito, lose some weight everywhere. And so like look at the whole, everything as a whole and your performance will get so much better. And I look at how I tore my Achilles and I rode my full-on powder ski. It's not metal reinforced, but I have a, a pivot binding on it. It's 117 powder ski, fairly strong. And I used a touring boot that day and Normally I'd use a downhill boot and I folded that in half. Mm -hmm. And so couldn't, didn't have the release. I would have used my lighter weight ski that's more flexible and a little bit more rocker in it to pair with that boot and say a lighter binding. I feel like I, it wasn't necessarily the bindings fault that I blew my Achilles. So would I love to have like a lighter binding on that? Yeah. Those things, but. Thinking about your system as a whole is like what I need to do and where I think a lot of people need to think about the whole issue and their setup.
0: Hmm. Hmm. Lars,
2: I I would just sort of second that. Um, I think that's a, it's not quite addressing the question, but I think from a consumer standpoint and Hoji got into that earlier, thinking about what you're doing, you know, whether you're putting, you know, a touring boot in a pivot 18 and just like, I think that's sort of why I I tried to get pin bindings to work, back day, but I wasn't comfortable in a touring boot and I was skiing, I was converting my full race boot, and I just had so much more power than the binding could handle that I was like, This isn't gonna work. And it was mostly driven by my boot, you know? And I think that's where Hoji at, where he's got a system that's light all the way throughout and he skis it accordingly. You know, it's realizing that from your own perspective, you know, as You know, this new big four-buckle DinaFit boot came out. It looks awesome, but I wouldn't go put that in a super light and put it on my, you know, 194 charge skis. Like, you're then going to have your point of failure be the binding. And it's not the binding's fault. It wasn't designed to handle either of those things. Mm -hmm. So from a consumer standpoint, being conscious of that and getting your, you know, what you're using to all sort of get together is super important, whether it's just having the right AFD or... Pairing your ski with your boot and having the right binding in between. Hmm. Um, that doesn't really get to the the question of, I don't know, what what black magic we're going yeah, with the um, ideal setup of pairing <laughs> the manufacturers. But that is very important. Um, I'm glad it led us there. Um, I don't know, I guess, is my answer to that question. <laughs> That's a very tough one to solve. I think it would just take, I, I don't know what company has that ability. Um, I've feel like we're in a unique place to try to lead, but we, yeah, we can't create a binding if there isn't a boot, you know, that works with it. Um, And boots and bindings are both extremely, I guess, tooling, and they're extremely intensive in terms of amount of development and then production cost that goes into all those, you know, every part of a binding, you know. I I've, I've got tools for every part of my binding that are more complex than my binding. <laughs> and it's like that's something people don't in boot. I couldn't even imagine getting into making boots, like how many different molds you need for that, you know. I cut injection molds for tiny little parts. Like in a whole line of boots is just so much commitment to cost and it's a hard one to overcome.
0: Hmm.
3: Well, I mean that's from the alpine side that's like exactly why it is the way it is because it works somehow it is standard and like they those bindings are made so coarsely there's no precision it's just rivet stamped together it works super well but it's they've developed that after so many years to be very efficient to make i mean you would know this from from what you've developed and gone through and going to dealing with tech interface and everything like it's every tolerance chain every every kind of detail that you have to be precise on like Alpine bindings are very good at not being that precise. One millimeter up and down and like, not, not that that's a bad thing. It's like a better thing because it becomes easier to manufacture and cheaper and everyone can get them and, Mm. and they can make, they can make, make them as they do. So it's, it's, it becomes really tough. Uh, That was one of the things that held tech, bindings back was it was a precision made little machine that's not just a clamping thing that can tolerate all these different uh, tolerances. Like it's it's a very precise thing comparatively to Alpine bindings. Yeah. And that's why they were expensive or they're they're still expensive. Yeah. Um, so you want to get into manufacturing like I didn't just touch on that, but I, I don't even know. But it, it gets the harder the more precise something has to be the more expensive and costly. And like when you're saying with the pin, like it's just, it becomes crazy. Like to get everyone aligned on the, the, to, to finally answer the question, like, yes, how do you get Solomon Tirolia, marker look and sit them in a room and tell them like, okay, let's just do like, we know the problems. Like the, the, the number one thing about all of this is like, We know the problems or we could try and identify with alpine bindings, with tech bindings, with hybrid bindings. And that's the point is like identifying those problems and limitations and starting over and with something without being like, we have to fulfill this, we have to fulfill this, 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 and this. And like, forget all that, forget everything but to get all those big manufacturers and small manufacturers to sit down at a table like we're doing right now and talk about it reasonably and not be trying to outdo each other, forget it. You know, <laughs> like <laughs> sounds, <laughs> sounds like the conversation we
0: should have next year. Yeah. at the blister. Yeah, Summit. yeah,
3: it's yeah. It, it's really tough. Like that would be the best. Yeah. Like in a fantasy world, you just get all the the people at those companies that are actually doing the work, and like everyone knows the problems and limitations, and like we collectively sit down and say okay we know all that that's the most important parts of starting over and where do we go from there but that's not how like capitalism and like that's that's not how this works Hmm. i'm sorry not yet not yet man you sound so pessimistic (laughs) no no but i'm a realist like i'm the happiest guy but
0: (laughs) um so the question is you've talked a lot about these tolerances and how tight they are we have many skiers all around the world walking to catch buses and to go ski, to go back from skiing. Do you strongly suggest that people not be walking around in ski boots? Would that, in your opinion, palpably help the issues that you're talking about?
2: Um, I think that that it, it definitely would not hurt. Um the frustration of for Hoji I, of grip walk, one of the frustrations is it's created a much smaller contact point with alpine bindings. Um, you do have a better walkability potentially um, but that contact point can be damaged more easily. Alpine bindings are spread out a little more Alpine the old standard. Um, most bindings are adjustable or have a mechanism to adjust. the looks have preload built into them so they can accommodate that. Solomons, you got to adjust them. So I think it would just be, yes, it's good to wear boot covers if you're going to be walking a long ways, but also just pay attention to your gear. If your soles are worn out, maybe replace them, you know? And if you've been walking a lot, maybe get your bindings checked again or readjust them to account for that wear. Um, Yeah, there are ways to do it, but boot covers definitely won't hurt. And I guess that's pretty much just Alpine specific tech inserts don't get worn out when you're
1: walking. Eye? I mean, I feel like Lars got it. Now that there, it's pretty concise. Yeah,
3: Hoji. Uh, from what I've seen, uh, just in the in the field or whatever, is like the problem with grip walk or alpine is like, and, and for this walking on the street and gravel, maybe it's not like, yeah, over time, yes, for sure. I mean, boot car. That's why they have the cat tracks or whatever. It's great, actually. Probably you should use them for sure. And it's the thing I've seen is that is not even that it gets it depends what kind of skiing you're doing, of course, but like for powder skiing and ski touring and all the like all the things that are going on, it's that the plastic gets all cut up and it becomes this rough surface that just is like depending on the snow and like here, okay, it's cold right now, nothing's sticking, but like if it gets in kind of up down temperature swing and like your boots are wet and then you're set like it becomes it becomes like a magnet to the snow and then you get you get so much build up and like you you have to be meticulous like you watch alpine racing and like there's a guy there with a screwdriver and a scraper ensuring exactly that the binding is going on properly and like i would speculate that a lot of binding failures and the same thing happens in tech bindings there's a few tricks that you have to know that no one talks about to clearing the snow out of the mechanisms and in alpine it's the interface that walking on the street cuts up that nice clean surface and it becomes a, a problem with snow buildup or snow holding on and you have to be careful about that so mm. it's where the where the covers if you're walking on the street i'd say mm
2: what's uh what are the best ways to keep your tech bindings working right
3: uh i mean the main fa- this is another question but the main failure i've seen many many times already several times this year is that when you're ski touring up down up, a few different transitions no one thinks or no one explains that the main thing is that when the 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 jaw like the toe piece the springs and the toe piece open and close any snow that goes under that toe piece gets put under enormous pressure and becomes this ice block and like most of the time people are getting into their bindings taking their skis off putting their skins whatever and they do that a few times in the right you know starting in warm snow at the bottom you go up to the powder at the top or whatever colder snow and you get this ice block that's basically sitting underneath the spring assembly, underneath the jaws of the the pins of the toe piece. And this is basically like blocking the binding from closing properly. And most people step in and, okay, it's in somehow and they click in, like the correct procedure from what I've seen and been shown and done for 10 years is as soon as you wanna put your ski on, you look, okay, there's some, snow under there ice doesn't matter and you just open and close that binding toe piece several times with like a pole handle but <laughs> this is one of the main things i teach to to people who are getting into ski touring like every time like look see it's the same as clearing off your your soles on your alpine boots you have to get that snow out of there or it's not closed and click 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 and if you hold the ski vertically it all it all comes out and then you click into the the toe piece, and I recommend every time, like lock the toe piece and ensure that it's completely engaged. And pick pick your heel up, and you swing. You basically do this swinging motion, and because all the pins have like a, a channel in them, it's like an auger. And if there's any snow in the pins of pinholes of the insert of the toe piece, it it basically digs it out. And because you've locked the toe piece, you know it's closed. And then you s- step into the heel, and then you put it into the unlock position in the toe. And if you do that meticulously, you de- develop that is the same as like clearing off your soles of your alpine boots before you step in your alpine bindings. You'll probably have a very successful chance that your binding's actually on properly. But this isn't a common thing that people know. Mm. And a lot of bindings get stepped into. There's ice under the toe. They never locked it. It's not even in. And they go skiing. I mean, I did this twice already this year. Watching a ski come at me for hundreds of meters and, like, playing the football guy receiver and stomping on it and then looking. And, like, there's an ice chunk under the thing and the under the toe piece. And the guy, yeah, no, no chance, you know. So... Um. <laughs>
0: Yeah. This is... Hot tip. Hot tip. (laughs) Get it out there. This is my promise. We're going to have a hell of a lot more binding talk on Blister, on some Gear 30 podcasts with you all. Um, This is exactly what I wanted tonight. Tonight, this was not about finding definitive solutions, but I think you all have done an incredible job of priming the pump and getting us to think through all the different components of what's happening. And that is actually what I really wanted to happen tonight. And so I'm very, very grateful to all of you for that. So to be continued, I'm making your fantasy panel session happen right here next year. That's another promise. Oh, me. But,
1: I've got a great question to forward on to those those panels okay, too. Okay, good. I want well, to see that's you, weird.
0: you all be here next year too then. But we'll keep this going, but let's solve some Can it some be
3: like the UN, like everyone has headf- yes. like headphones with like different yes. like. Yes, we can do that.
0: Um, anyway, seriously, many, many thanks to you all. And um, I think we've all learned a lot, and probably each of us has a different thought or two or hot tip um, to take away. So thank you very much. To be continued. Thanks, everybody. All right, well, this is where we would normally do our crashes and close calls segment, but I think the whole conversation you just heard basically counts as our crashes and close calls segment. So yeah, folks, this would be a good reminder to sign up for Blister Plus to get that injury insurance before you go out there. And get wrecked. It happens to all of us now, on a different note, let's talk about what we're celebrating this week. Uh, I am recording this Thursday, May eighteenth at ten fifteen p m, and I am celebrating with an East Coast transplant beer from New Image Brewing. This is one of my favorite beers in the world, actually. And what I'm celebrating is on Saturday, I'm heading to California to go see the girl I'm dating. You know, a lot of times here in Crested Butte, I'm kind of on that program where sort of wake up, work till midnight, take a break somewhere in there to either get on the mountain skiing or get out running or biking. But um, it's some long days and I'm really excited to, uh, to go see this person I'm pretty into out in that wild land of Los Angeles, you know. Um, it's basically the polar opposite of Crested Butte. But um happy to get out there. And I think that's what I'm going to raise a glass to this week. So here's to seeing the friends we love and the people we love, even when it means, you know, leaving some gorgeous mountains that, you know, you also love. So Anyway, that is it for this edition of Gear 30. I want to say thanks so much to Hoji and to Lars and to Garai for this great conversation. Thanks to the strikingly handsome Justin Bob for spinning that Blister Summit conversation into this podcast. And thanks to you for listening and for being smart enough and, you know, serious enough for taking the topics that we talked about in this conversation to heart. On that note, I hope you all have a phenomenal weekend, and we would be forever grateful to you if you would take just 30 seconds and leave us a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts if you find conversations like these important and maybe even enjoyable probably at least significant. And that will just help us keep this whole enterprise going and growing. All right, everybody. Thanks. And we will talk to you again real soon.